We'll be looking at John 16, 25 through 32 this morning. And if you find that text with one eye and close the other one while we pray for just a moment. Our Father, we would like to just ask you now to continue to move our hearts upward toward you. We have sung the great truths of the gospel of Christ, your glorious grace, your kindness, your goodness, and now we look to the word of God and ultimately to culminate our time together remembering the Lord Jesus Christ through the Lord's table. And so now, Lord, I would pray with the psalmist of Psalm 119 to open our eyes that we may behold the wonderful things in your law, in your word, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we'll be in John 16, 25 to 32, but I want to take a few moments to work toward our text this morning. In our walk of faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the toughest things that we have to endure are those times that the Lord chooses to humble us, to greatly humble us, but we need it. We need humbling. You and I both are by nature proud. We're arrogant. We're sanctimonious. We're guarded. We may have the very, very best of intentions, but in our walk with the Lord, we may not even know what we don't know. And so the Lord graciously brings into our lives times of tremendous humbling to help us with haughtiness, to help us with conceit. These times, what I'm calling this morning, heartbreaking humbling, that just shatter your heart. But let me give you the good news up front. If you've ever found yourself just crushed before the Lord, especially because of something that you've done, a sin that you've committed, when you've sinned in a way that's so heinous and so disappointing that you can hardly even to fa- face the Lord in confession of that sin, and if while you're in that position you have a sense of loss, a sense of shame, a sense of humiliation even, and, and sorrow over your failure, the good news is that, that that is excellent evidence of the reality of your salvation. That you are in fact in Christ, your faith is genuine because you are convicted, you're, you're crushed by your own sin. And in our series in John 15 and 16, which we've called Costly Christianity, we've identified some costs that are incurred as a a result of following Christ. Yes, salvation from sin is absolutely the, the free gift of God in Christ. But once you join the ranks of the family of God, sacrifice is required. Suffering is a certainty. You are to take up your cross. You are to die to yourself. It's a daily pursuit. And so we've made a list of these costs from John 15 and 16. And one cost of this endurance is the inevitable, heartbreaking humbling. This humbling is for your own good. It is also for God's glory as he continues to make you in the image of Jesus Christ. And toward that end, God will allow you to fail. Not just to fail, but sometimes to fail miserably. God will allow you to see the darkness of your own sin patterns These moments that can be so terrible that you even have trouble looking at yourself in the mirror. Now, I think sometimes the gospel is portrayed as simply a method to take away all your guilt before God. And that statement is misleading because it's oversimplified. Because we could observe three kinds of guilt. And this is an important foundation for us this morning. The first type of guilt we could observe we would call judicial guilt. Judicial guilt speaks of the justice of God and that because of your sin, you are guilty before a holy God. Revelation 20 pictures the final judgment in which Jesus Christ, the judge, takes and opens the books which contain all the charges against the sinner. But if you've humbled yourself to ask God for mercy, to receive his grace and salvation, now judicial guilt is gone. It's it's finished. And we get this promise in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's good news. You're justified in the eyes of God. You are judicially and in the legal courts of heaven made whole, made pure, made clean. You have had the righteousness of Christ applied to you as if you lived the life that Jesus did. You have the full atonement of Christ given to you and no one No one can ever make you guilty again. So does judicial guilt ever apply to you as a Christian? Never again. Never again. 
But we have a second kind of guilt we could identify we might call family guilt. Family guilt, incurring guilt for intentional sin, which must be dealt with by confession. And maybe even discipline as part of being of the family of God. This is a, a harming of the fellowship between you and God. Paul explained to the believers in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Guilty. These are Christians. Of course, 1 John 1, nine promises forgiveness of sin after confession, not in the sense of gaining or somehow regaining your salvation. Your salvation was never in question, but in the sense of restoring a proper relationship, a proper fellowship with the Lord. And then we could identify a third type of guilt that we'll call conscience guilt. Conscience guilt that as a full-fledged member of the family of God, as a regenerate, born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your conscience becomes weighed down with a sin or sin pattern or unconfessed sin, which manifests itself in a feeling of guilt, which we call your conscience in fact, the reason that before every morning, Sunday morning worship service, that right at the beginning we have a time of confession is so that you might relieve your conscience and come to the Lord with no conscience guilt, no family guilt, because you've already been relieved of judicial guilt. But conscience guilt is, is sorrow. It's sorrow associated with having transgressed against the Lord. This is the regret of knowing, for example, from Ephesians 4, verse 30, that you've grieved the Lord, that you have grieved the Spirit of God. Now, we began this whole series in Costly Christianity partly to refute free grace theology, which is, is so prevalent today. And free grace theology basically says that all someone has to do to be a Christian is one time at some point in history have intellectually believed that Jesus died on the cross to save from sin. Repentance is not necessary and even continuing in the faith isn't necessary. That all you have to do is point to that one time when you were six years old that you said, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You can live like a heathen the rest of your life and you're still saved. Well, as a result of free grace theology, one of their major teachings is that there should be no guilt of any kind emotionally for sin ever but i think that the main writers in those in this movement they often fail to distinguish between these different types of guilt which we've talked about and of course no one is saying and i'm not saying that a christian should walk around burdened by false guilt all the time that you're continually trying to keep and earn god's favor that's not the gospel you have the favor of god it's called grace it's something he gave to you it has nothing to do with what you do but neither do we absolve ourselves of the fact that God does in fact continue to shape us and to make us in the image of Christ. And often he does this through our own failures, through facing our own other incapacity to please God fully. In fact, this attempt by free grace proponents to free us from the occasional emotion of guilt, in fact, it actually hinders our spiritual growth and it places the emphasis now on feeling good. You could just go on Amazon or on Google and type in the phrase guilt-free. And you're going to see all kinds of books pop up with that phrase in it. Many of them written by free grace theologians. Guilt-free living, guilt-free this, guilt-free that. And it's very appealing because I don't want to feel guilt. And you don't want to feel guilt. But I'll tell you who would have vehemently disagreed with that idea, the Puritans. Here's what John Owen, famous Puritan, wrote. He said, The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Very astute theological observation. Then he goes on to cite Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. I think the faulty assumption is, is that I ha if I have a feeling of guilt, that that means I haven't fully accepted how truly forgiven I am and I should just try to get rid of those feelings of guilt. No, you should strive to get rid of the sin which produces those feelings of guilt. That's going to the real heart of the issue. The, the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, 
Quote, if a Christian is slack in duty, they spoil the sweet peace in their souls. As the fire decays, the cold increases, so as fervency in duty abates, our peace cools. Let me translate. In other words, obedience and duty comes before experiencing sanctified feelings. You can't just say, I want to feel good without a reference to what am I doing in my life that's actually producing guilt. I know this is difficult territory to cover because we want the gospel so much to be about being forgiven, which it is, and never feeling guilt again. Remember, judicial guilt, never again. That is never your concern, ever, for all eternity. And it is true that you should never feel that condemnation of God. But neither does following Christ mean never being corrected. It doesn't mean never stepping on a landmine of your own making, your own sin, never experiencing hard things which help you. And so rather than talking about guilt, maybe a more useful term is the idea in that third type of guilt, the conscience. And Scripture certainly does speak to our conscience. In Hebrews 13, verse 18, the writer of Hebrews asked for prayer for their ministry team And he expressed his desire to do all things, quote, from a clear conscience. In 1 Peter 3.16, Peter speaks of having a good conscience concerning your behavior so that if any unbeliever accuses you of wrong, they'll be put to shame. And so that means behaving yourselves with a good conscience. Paul said in Romans 13.5 that we are to be subject to ruling authorities, quote, for the sake of conscience, so that my conscience isn't harmed. And how is this ever-growing, innocent conscience built by God? Well, one way is through the gracious kindness of God to let you experience the humiliation of your own sin. Sometimes those are lessons you will never forget. Those unforgettable experiences which humble you and make you twinge when you recall how unrighteous and how filthy you were in the way you behaved. You ever have a time where you say something that you regret And two seconds later, you realize it. Worse, 10 years later, do you think about that and you still kind of twinge a little bit? You know what that's called? That's called a lesson. And it tells you don't do that again. And it serves to motivate us, to challenge us, to call upon the name of the Lord for help and for sanctification. I give you all that groundwork because in our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus predict one of those terrible moments of heartbreaking, humbling which will shortly happen to all the disciples. And we'll just divide our thoughts by the time frame. And we'll apply it directly to our own lives. So very simple division here. I want to talk to you about before your humbling, during your humbling, and after your humbling. I think that's easy enough to remember. Before your humbling, during your humbling, after your humbling. Let's talk about before your humbling. You recall that Jesus is now drawing near to the close of his farewell address to his disciples. He's quite literally minutes now from his arrest at this point. He's been speaking to his disciples on a wide variety of topics to prepare them for his departure, both to the cross and then ultimately for his departure to heaven and his ascension. They've asked questions. They've been confused at times. They're not fully comprehending the person of Christ. They're not fully comprehending the work of Christ, which he must accomplish on the cross. And now the Lord Jesus begins to make some closing remarks. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, there were numerous times in Jesus' ministry that the disciples didn't grasp his meaning, didn't understand what he meant, didn't know what he was talking about. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 5, Jesus and the disciples are I have crossed over the Sea of Galilee by boat and the disciples forgot to bring bread with them. Now, side note, that's a little bit ironic considering that Jesus had just fed 4,000 men and their women and children and had seven baskets of bread left over. And they got in the boat looking at each other. Did anybody bring the bread? You got to be kidding me. Seven baskets on the shore. And so they're whispering among themselves, we forgot the bread. But Jesus used their forgetfulness to teach them a much more important lesson. He said to them, watch and beware of the leaven, that is the yeast, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Meaning, 
using very familiar Old Testament imagery, beware of the the sinful, self-righteous, legalistic teaching which, like yeast, like leaven, spreads throughout the whole loaf. But they thought he said this because they forgot to bring bread. They weren't getting it. And so he says, aware of this, Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is a good lesson in understanding the difference between figurative language and literal language. And so that sort of misunderstanding happened all the time with them. I mean, as you read through the Gospels, you think these are the guys that the Lord entrusted the spread of the Gospel to the whole world to? I mean, they don't understand them half the time. Now, frequently... It was due to the fact that Jesus would teach in parables, in figurative language, using statements and stories which didn't make their meaning immediately evident, but had to be pondered, had to be searched, had to be thought about. The purposes of those parables, as Jesus explained in Matthew 13, was was twofold. It was to give the truth only to those who would believe and keep the truth from those who would not believe. And even in this farewell discourse here, beginning in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been mysterious on many matters. They've questioned him. They've questioned one another. But now, finally, he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. There must be a sense of relief. Three and a half years of trying to figure you out. And finally, we're going to hear something direct. And as we discussed last time, with the soon coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, what was once veiled for them will now be revealed. And in the pages of the New Testament, as you read the books written by these same men, you see precision and you see detail and you see the glory of God revealed in precise language because the Spirit would come and reveal it to them. And then Jesus reminded them, Harkening back to the statement he just made in verse 24 about prayer, Jesus reminded them of just how amazing their access to God the Father was about to be in verse 26 here in our text. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. They wouldn't just ask Jesus, can you speak to God the Father on our behalf? They would be permitted full access to the Father as they prayed consistent with the will of Christ And why would they receive this privilege? Verse 27 tells us, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. They're loved by the Father because the disciples have loved his Son. And so the disciples, like us today, will be given unprecedented direct access to God the Father. And then in verse 28, Jesus summarizes really his entire earthly ministry I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Just a few words here in the Greek text, a few words in English, but this is a power-packed statement of Christology, of who Christ is. He says, I came from the Father. This affirms the deity of Christ, that he is fully and completely and holy God, even as the first chapter of this same gospel asserts in no uncertain terms. By the way, that belief is necessary for salvation in john 8 24 jesus said i told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sins i am he who the god of the old testament unless you believe i am yahweh i am who i am you will die in your sins i came from the father then he says and i have come into the world if i came from the father affirms the deity of christ I have come into the world, affirms the humanity of Christ, which further qualifies him to be our mediator, to be our substitute sacrifice for sin. And this belief is also necessary for salvation. 2 John verse 7 says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver. So you must believe Jesus is God. You must believe Jesus is man. 
And he says, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is a statement of his current ministry. Jesus will be going to heaven after his death and his resurrection. And now he will fulfill his duty as intercessor, as mediator, as Hebrews 7.25 says, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That belief is necessary for salvation, to understand that Christ and Christ alone is your intercessor, is your mediator. And now, finally, the light bulbs are starting to come on with the disciples. Now, admittedly, it's like a fluorescent light in a room that's 40 degrees. It's kind of dim, and it'll come on over time, but it gets a little brighter. Verse 29, his disciples said, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They're believing that Jesus truly is all-knowing. He is fully God, that he's now answered all of their questions. They don't need to ask him any more questions. And they make this statement, we believe you came from God. This places the disciples firmly in the category of they didn't know what they didn't know. Because they're triumphant, they're victorious, they had figured out Jesus. Their faith was now complete. They were ready. They were mature in Christ. Let the kingdom commence. And then Jesus lets the air out of their quickly swelling heads. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? There's a challenging note. There's a note of sarcasm. I would imagine there was a silent moment right there. He's asking, is your faith complete? Do you really understand me? Do you really trust me? Will you really follow me to the very end? Are you totally loyal to me? Is your allegiance complete? Is your faith absolutely as strong as it ever could be? He's not questioning the genuineness of their faith. Their faith certainly was genuine, but it was weak. It was immature. It was feeble. Why? Because they had not yet been humbled. And it shows in their childlike arrogance and pride. We get you now. We understand everything now. In this very church, I have had a four-year-old child come and say, thank you for your preaching. I now understand the Bible. He just say, praise God. Isn't that wonderful? When you first came to faith in Christ, absolutely there's an exuberance, there's a joy, and as you learn and as you grow, there may even be a danger of reaching the point where you feel like you get it, where you feel like you've arrived. And sometimes that point comes when you start to turn off preaching in your mind, that now you just go through it to, to listen and not learn. You might not say that aloud. You might not even be consciously thinking it aloud, but you may begin to show it in complacency, in very subtly viewing yourselves as different from other believers, as in a category by yourself, as not quite as susceptible to sin as other poor slob Christians who are failing all the time. And yes, maybe you've heard several sermons on the importance of humility. Maybe you've made a self-assessment and decided that you're pretty humble. In fact, so humble that you're a little bit proud of it. And maybe even you're reaching the point where you've forgotten that Jesus isn't your buddy He's the God of the universe who has graciously saved you. The same Jesus who slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in Isaiah 37. The same Jesus who slaughtered Pharaoh's army. The same Jesus who broke open the fountains of the deep and flooded the whole earth with his white, hot, righteous, indignant judgment. The same Jesus who is the creator of the ends of the earth. And maybe we've forgotten to tremble just a little. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs reminded believers to tremble even at the word of God, no matter your circumstances. He said this, a gracious trembling is a habitual trembling, a trembling of heart that is habitual in the heart, not all of a sudden only, but the trembling at God's word that the Lord so highly esteems is a constant habitual disposition of soul, Oh, many men will tremble at God's word in times of their sickness and affliction, but let them have quiet and outward peace and ease, and their trembling is gone. But a gracious heart trembles at the word of God, even when it has a most quiet conscience. 
And so, in God's gracious help in our worship and in our humility before Him, He takes us from a time before our humbling to a time of humbling. To a time to remember who we are compared to who He is. The disciples weren't trembling, but they would be. They would go from the time before their humbling to the time to be humbled. Verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. They would completely desert Jesus. They would leave him alone at his time of greatest pain and sorrow. But he shows even here how great his love and his trust and his confidence is in his father by telling them that his absolute trust in his father is complete. It's perfect. That even if they're about to let him down so painfully, his father never will. And he says that the hour is coming. In fact, it's almost here when the disciples will scatter and they will abandon Jesus for a time. And this is, of course, speaking of his arrest. John's gospel doesn't record the actual scattering of the disciples, so we rely on another gospel to help us. Let's read this account together. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. Just a few minutes later, as Jesus and the disciples are walking through the Kidron Valley toward the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will repeat his prediction in even clearer terms. And here's here's his repeated prediction with even more clarity. Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. How long would their resolve last? About four seconds. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They all ran. And so in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 13 verse 7. God will strike the sheep, strike the shepherd rather, and the sheep will be scattered. I mean, it's just literally minutes before. Minutes before, Peter had proclaimed that even if everyone else deserted Jesus, he never would. But not only did Peter's faith melt and collapse, as did the others, he would be the one to deny knowing Christ three times throughout the rest of the night as Jesus endured his trials and his torture. You remember how it happened. Luke 22 records, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And so he came back, but he's at a distance. He's just looking on. And the servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. 
But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter, who boasted with all the other disciples, now we know what you're talking about. We don't need to ask you any more questions. Our faith is complete. Let the kingdom commence. We're ready to go. Peter, who boasted of his total loyalty, he boasted even, I'm more loyal than the rest of these guys. He shamed himself and he left his Lord to die alone. Look, you know that feeling. And could I say this if you're new in Christ? If you don't know that feeling, you will. You will. Of doing the very thing which you desperately did not want to do or perhaps the thing you minimized and didn't realize how serious it would be. And as you are being humbled, you're reminded in stark terms that we are to tremble before our holy God who loves us so much that he's making us into Christ's likeness. But God is gracious during your time of humbling. He never let go. He's got a hold of your collar. He says, let's start pulling you out. And marvelous things happen. Things that are healing, things that are helpful. We remember King David and how he arrogantly sought after another man's wife and even had that man killed in order to avoid the embarrassment of the fact that he had impregnated another man's wife and the Lord severely disciplined David. The child from the union of David and Bathsheba died and David was confronted by the prophet Nathan and humiliated at his sin. I mean, if you remember from 2 Samuel, Nathan even set up David by saying, there once was a man who did this thing that was terrible and set up David to say, that man is horrible. And Nathan said, that man is you. And in repentance, David famously penned Psalm 51. And in this psalm, David asks for and he receives mercy from God and forgiveness. And he makes an interesting request. He says in Psalm 51, verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What does he mean by let me hear joy and gladness? Well, joy and gladness refers to specifically being able to enter into the sanctuary of God to worship and to hear the, hear the choirs and hear the musicians who give praise to God. Now, he could enter as a fraud, In fact, the previous psalm, Psalm 50, condemns those who are religious frauds who enter the sanctuary without repentance, with outward worship only while their hearts remain wicked and rebellious. But David doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to, as it were, come to church with a guilty heart. He's asking for forgiveness so that he might worship without the hindrance of something between him and his God. And so he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, there's been no physical harm done to David, so he's using the figure of speech common in Hebrew, the thought being that the bones represent the very structure of a person, his soul. And so he's declaring that God has broken, literally in Hebrew, crushed his soul. But now in brokenness, he's asking for the Lord's mercy and how merciful God is. David had humiliated himself. He had shamed the office of king He had taken another man's wife as his own while even having her husband killed. And yet because of David's shattered heart and his brokenness and acknowledging his guilt before God, God mercifully blessed him. His marriage to Bathsheba had been founded in treachery and yet God blessed them. She gave birth to another son. And in fact, 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25 records that the Lord loved this child and sent a message by Nathan, the same prophet who rebuked David. Nathan gave a message. David's name for the boy was Solomon, but God's name for the boy was Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. Blessing and mercy and grace and kindness. There is the time before your humbling when the Lord can help you have a more proper view of him and yourself and alter your sanctification in the turn of a second. 
There's a time during your humbling when shame and guilt drive you to your knees. What about the time after your humbling? When the Lord crushes you or is crushing you for your own good and for his glory, what, what can you learn? What's the outcome? There are two outcomes I'd like to highlight in some detail, and I want to take a moment on this. The first outcome is a greater knowledge of God's grace. A greater knowledge of God's grace. And I know that sounds simplistic, but if you've been in the Lord for 40 years, you remember what you thought of grace 39 years ago, and compared to what you think now, it's different, isn't it? It's richer, it's deeper. We'll continue to use Peter as our representative example, the one who proclaimed he was more loyal than the rest of the disciples, and yet the one who was most severely abandoning Christ. What did Jesus do with him? John 21 records the famous interaction between Jesus and Peter after the resurrection of Christ, in which Jesus asked Peter three times, the same number of times Peter denied him, he asked him three times, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Jesus is using his given name, not the name Peter, which Jesus had nicknamed him with. He asks him officially, Simon, son of John, this is official. Do you love me? And he made Peter publicly acknowledge his love for Christ one time for each time he denied Christ to the point if you read John 21, Peter's hurt. He's crushed by this. It's humbling. And Peter is restored by Christ. He confirmed that Peter is still his. Now this is an astounding act of grace because consider this. This is the same Jesus who preached in Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Peter had been ashamed of Christ and yet... He also felt the guilt. He also felt the conviction, the weight of the shame. He wept over his own sin. And so Jesus demonstrates that when grace is extended to a sinner, it is eternal grace. It is incorruptible grace. It is permanent grace. Now, I know I've waded into some treacherous waters earlier by suggesting that the guilt we feel when we sin against the Lord, particularly something especially heinous, is proper and it is deserved. But let's review the three types of guilt I suggested in light of God's grace, in light of his kindness. When you've sinned in a particularly odious and atrocious manner, how about judicial guilt? Well, that never changed. Your standing before God is justified is the same. You have the imputed, the credited righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. That's never changed. Your name is is printed indelibly in the Lamb's book of life. God never wavers in his perfect commitment to you and to your salvation. It's not that like God is driven by his own emotion. He's not driven by emotion at all. It's not that today God's mad at you, tomorrow you're saved again, the next day, who knows. His right standing that he has imparted to you always stays the same. It never changes. He will finish the work he began in you. How about family guilt? the harming of the relationship between you and God, the breaking of fellowship. When you ask for forgiveness, you're immediately forgiven, immediately in perfect harmony with the Lord. If I had a nickel for every time a believer has said, you know, when I really sin against the Lord, I feel like I need to give it about three days before I confess. In other words, give God a cooling off period. State of California would be five days probably. That's wrong though. We go, we go straight to the Lord because grace is immediately available Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you immediately forgave the iniquity of my sin. How about conscience guilt? Now that one may be the most difficult challenge because the memory and the sting of your own sin still lingers, doesn't it? But the knowledge that judicial guilt never changed that family guilt is immediately removed, it should encourage your heart toward wiping away your tears and receiving anew and afresh what David called in Psalm 51, verse 12, the joy of salvation. And now, after walking through a time of heartbreaking humbling, now God's grace becomes more special. It becomes more dear to you. And if we used, for example, Psalm 103, verse 8, and following 
you would see that it's more precious, it's more dear, more important to you. Listen to God's grace. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Listen, as you have gone through times in your life of heartbreaking humbling, and some of you have been in the faith long enough that even when I bring that up, you smile and nod. And you're looking around at those who haven't looked at it yet and you smile and nod even more because you know it's coming. But you understand grace because you know what it is to sink to the depths of failure and be ripped out of that failure by the grace of God over and over and over again. Here's a second effect of heartbreaking humbling. A greater appreciation of God's sovereignty. A greater appreciation of God's sovereignty. And I think this would be best served if you turned with me to Zechariah chapter 13. Just a few pages back from Matthew, actually. Zechariah chapter 13, right near the end of the Old Testament. A greater appreciation of God's sovereignty. Remember that the disciples, when they ran away from Jesus, they were doing so in fulfillment of a prophecy found in Zechariah 13, 7. It occurs in the second half of the verse. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Zechariah 13 is a whole chapter. It's nothing short of epic. It's ambitious in its scope. These final chapters in Zechariah deal with God's future kingdom plan, specifically concerning Israel. And in the first six verses of Zechariah 13, God condemns all the false prophets, all the idolaters of Israel, And he describes how God will humble them, how one day God will banish idolatry of every kind from his land. He'll banish idolatry of every kind from his people. And then in just three verses, verses 7, 8, and 9, a poetic prophecy is presented in this beautiful artistic form. And in these three verses, God spans three different time periods. The first time period, the time of Jesus' arrest and death. The time we're concerned with right there in John 16. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is God speaking metaphorically to a sword. And this sword is to strike the shepherd. And God calls this man my shepherd and the man who stands next to me. Interestingly, it's a, it's a Hebrew phrase which means my close neighbor, my relative, the one whom I love, the one I'm close to, the one that I am part of, the one who's in my family, the one whose house is literally next to mine. It is God who has ordained the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And why? To accomplish salvation from sin and to offer him as the only successful, the only effective, the only efficacious sacrifice for the sins of those who would believe. And so that covers the time of Christ and his, his death and resurrection. But this epic, epic passage goes to a second time period, the generation after Jesus, the generation right after Jesus. At the end of verse 7, I will turn my hand against the little ones. The context is Israel. God will turn his hand of punishment on his chosen nation. Why? Because they have officially rejected Jesus Christ. In Matthew 24, 1 and 2, Jesus predicted the coming total destruction of the temple. In Luke 21, beginning in verse 20, Jesus warned, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles 
is fulfilled. And of course, history tells us that just a generation later, after the Lord Jesus Christ, in A.D. 70, all of these prophecies Jesus made came true. When Rome crushed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, literally pushing down every stone. They murdered 1.1 million Jews and enslaved tens of thousands more. And Israel as a nation ceased to exist at that point. But then this prophecy in Zechariah 13 turns to a third time period, the coming Great Tribulation. Verse 8, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. This can't be speaking of the Roman destruction because verse 9 lists a new event that has never happened, hasn't happened yet in history Verse 9, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is the salvation of national Israel, of the remnant who will repent. As the previous chapter in Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. Now, my point in bringing this up is that the scattering and the restoration of the disciples was not just some random event prophesied in Zechariah, which the disciples had to fulfill. This wasn't just out of nowhere. This wasn't just that, uh, let's see, I think there's a verse in the Old Testament that says that your shoe will be untied, so uh, untie your shoes so we can fulfill that prophecy. It's not random. This prophecy and what happened with those 11 who were left with Judas coming as the betrayer is a picture of what God is doing with Israel as a whole. Many will be scattered and spiritually speaking, they still are scattered. Yes, there is a nation of Israel, but not one that follows Christ. So how amazing is that, that the failure and the collapse of the faith of the disciples not only served to teach them and humble them, but it was also part of God's grand plan of redemption for Israel and to be a living example. If you want to know what God will do with Israel, just look at the apostles. First they scattered, then he restored them. In many ways that you can't possibly fathom, even your heartbreaking humbling, even your time of pain where you failed, the pain of failure, the humility of confession and repentance, it's not just about you. Everything God does fits into a bigger picture, into a bigger plan. Let me give you an illustration. I've had the privilege of dealing and counseling with many, many family problems, and often the family problem is caused by one problematic, rebellious, or difficult family member. A family member which is causing all kinds of strife or inconvenience or pain or anxiety And of course, the family members naturally and understandably have all their focus on that person. That's the center of attention. If only we could change that person, then we could be happy. We could be content once again. But there's a question. In fact, it's an attitude-altering question. It's a game-changing question, which may be asked, which completely turns everything upside down. What if so-and-so's sinful actions and difficulties are not just about God needing to do something about him, but more about God working on you and on your patience, your endurance, your sin tendencies, highlighting your lack of trust in the Lord. See, you know what I've discovered doing counseling? And that is that when there's one problematic uh, family member, the sins of all the rest of the family come out with shining glory. In other words, what if that person is the scalpel in God's hand to do exploratory surgery on your heart? That's a game changer. Because you know what we've just employed? We've just employed the sovereignty of God. It changes everything because suddenly God is sovereign again. God is in control once again. We're put in our proper place as not everything being just about me. Even your greatest failures, even those, are used of God in his grand plan to make you like Christ and to work in the lives of those around you. So in your heartbreaking humbling, thank the Lord for his sovereignty, for his infinite wisdom and mind-blowing knowledge which far exceeds your ability to grasp. 
Well, I've been a little hard on old Peter. Maybe we ought to let him have the last word. He proudly proclaimed himself more loyal than the rest. He humiliated himself to the point of bitter weeping and public rebuke. Listen, the words of Peter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Pretty good advice from the guy who didn't know what he was talking about. And now he does, doesn't he? Let's pray for a moment and then we'll go to the Lord's table together. Our Father, the judicial guilt which we so rightly deserved by the blood of Jesus Christ has been taken care of. It has been completely washed clean. We are, as Isaiah 1 says, though our sins were as scarlet, they are now white as snow. We are cleansed, we are clean, and so we thank you for that. And while we still struggle and wallow in a sinful world, Lord God, we would come to you now, focus now exclusively on the removal of our judicial guilt, on that beautiful truth which is symbolized in the cup, in the bread, that as we now come before you, to remember the Lord Jesus as he commanded us. I pray, Lord, that you would honor our desire to love the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us a a heart of sorrowful celebration as we remember the pain and the agony which Christ had to endure for our sake and yet now remember the grace, the mercy, and the kindness that is extended to us. We pray for hearts focused upon you during this ultimate time of worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen.